last Sunday on uh, Joshua. And this is a great book. They're all great books, but, but this, uh, th- this is the bridge in between all these promises that are made to Israel, especially when they're in uh, the wilderness. And, and they're not landowners. They are nomadic. And then what happens for the rest of Israel's history is people who live in the promised land. Joshua explains how you got from, from A to B. So we're going to, Lord willing, be in Joshua this summer. We're in chapter 2 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin there. It is interesting to note when you read the Bible, Old or New Testament, what is given space and what's not, and how much space it's given. For instance, a few years ago, it was a summer uh, sermon series I did. I I preached on the tabernacle and all the the pieces in the tabernacle and the priests and what they wore and what they did and, and tried to to draw out the meaning that God had put in these things. And we looked at the fact that, you know, when God records the creation of the whole cosmos, it's in the first two chapters of the Bible, really mostly the first one. And then the building of the tabernacle is over ten chapters. And you ask yourself, all right, that's that's not by accident. God did that for a reason. He wanted it to have that much space. And as I was working on this, this, uh, this passage for this sermon, I, almost every commentator or Old Testament scholar I looked at made this point. This account does not have to be here. You could have just gone from the text that we looked at last week about Joshua being commissioned as Moses' successor, as the leader of Israel into the Promised Land, and go from that to the, the conquest beginning. And Lord willing, we're going to start looking at that in the next week or two. But you get this episode that really could have just been known to a few people and they would have known it in their lifetimes. Maybe they would have told some people. It would have died off after a while in people's memory. And no one would have needed to know. And God spends a lot of space putting it here to say, I want you to know this. And here's the hope. Um, God is showing us through a very surprising person. If you heard Jake's comments beforehand, he already, he's already started into my sermon. Uh, that Through a very surprising person, God is showing us things about himself. Through a bad person. And, and God is showing us things about ourselves. If he will help us to see it, it's there. Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you 
has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray what the psalmist prayed, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two quick stories from two very different people. Uh, Harry S. Truman and Beyonce. (laughs) Who may never reappear together in any human communication ever again. Um anywhere. Harry S. Truman, his first week in the White House, uh, just a, a few days after he was inaugurated, he realized he didn't have any, any uh, pocket money. He didn't have any cash in his billfold. And he was, uh, he was a very brisk walker. He's famous for these fast morning walks. So uh, two or three days, you know, at the White House, realizes he doesn't have any cash. Maybe they have ATMs there now. I don't know, but they sure didn't then. And he just uh, headed out the door and walked across the White House lawn and then headed out into D.C. to the nearest bank. 
And the Secret Service sort of looked up and realized they didn't know where the president was. And they just go tearing out of the White House. They find him on a city block. And that must have been hilarious to be one of the people that walked past him like, aren't you the... Uh, And they stopped him on the street and and they said they gave him a talking to and just said, look, you you cannot do that anymore. Um, Your status changed a few days ago. You are now the president of the United States. We're with you everywhere. All right, that's, that's story number one. Story number two, Beyonce tells the story that when she was 19 years old, and uh, I guess this is when she was in Destiny's Child, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) Solo career had not really taken off yet. She was in a record store with her mom and dad. And uh, and just her her star is really on the rise. And uh, so I don't know if she's there for a promotional event or what, but she's 19, she's there with her mom and dad. And she hears a song of hers being played on, the, on the, the sound system of the record store. And so she starts singing along with her own voice. And she looks over and she says, these really good-looking guys are watching her. And so she just kind of had this moment where she just was, she was just loving it. I mean, she's in the limelight. It's her song. She's singing along with her song. And her mom saw her doing that. And she walked over to her and told her to stop. And she kept singing. And her mom slapped her across the face. Now, again, not condoning that in parenting, all right? But this, I'm just reporting. But Beyonce said that she was glad her mother did that because she was acting like someone who had forgotten what she had been or where she came from. And she never acted like a diva again after that. That may be the only time I've ever taken a little, little jab at a celebrity. But, but, no, but, but by her own admission, she says she was glad her mom did that. Now, here's what I want us to think about. Um, if you're someone here who would profess to have what the Bible calls faith, that really everybody has some kind of faith. You trust in something and you look to it. But what I mean is what the Bible would call saving faith, saving faith in God as He's revealed in Scripture. If you're here and you're a person who professes to have that, there's a couple of things that you can do that will be harmful to you. The first one would be to forget what you had been. And the other would be to forget what you are now. And I want to circle back to that at the end, but just kind of tuck that away. By the same token, if you're here and you're someone who would say, I I don't profess to be a person with faith... And it always excites us that that there are people in the room who are processing these things and maybe right now are not convinced, but they're just, maybe maybe a friend brought you and you're just listening. But you might be a person who would say, all right, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, but I don't know that I have what the Bible would call faith. And here's the beautiful thing. This passage, it just is loaded with wonderful news because it's the news of where does biblical faith come from? And it's very hopeful. In other words, this is a great passage for anybody. Um, This is going to be a sermon about faith. Now, Rahab, in some ways, is the main character, but it's a sermon about faith, what the the Bible says, not just here but elsewhere, about faith. And I want to look at Rahab's faith as sort of a case study. So a few things here. First off, Rahab's faith was unnatural. 
Second thing, Rahab's faith acted. Third thing, Rahab's faith changed her story. All right, so her faith was unnatural, it acted, and it changed her story. Now, first thing, Rahab's faith was, was unnatural. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go through the whole... I'm not going to retell it. This is a, it took a long time to read it, and I want to be respectful of our time. Let me, let me go ahead and get one little detail out of the way, because I thought about this when I was studying it. The commentators get into it. It may have... Uh, you may have thought about it when I was reading, when I was reading the text, and that is, what in the world are these Israelite spies doing in a prostitute's house anyway? And the scholarly consensus, uh, from what I could see across the board, was that based on the evidence in this text, and even evidence in, in extra-biblical writings, is that they were not there for sketchy reasons, that in that cultural setting, Rahab's home would be something like uh, a tavern or an inn. And uh, in addition, it would be a place where it wasn't unusual to see all sorts of different men arrive and leave at different times of the day. It would be one of the only homes that would be open at night. You know, this is pre-streetlight, pre-electricity. At night, homes close down. This would be a home that was open. So it's, it's not necessarily sketchy that they're at a prostitute's house. That's where they are. That's how it's reported. When Rahab is talking with these spies, she says to them, everybody in this region is terrified of you. Did you catch that? And it says it over and over. Look in verse 9. She says, the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Now, when she says that, she means not only are all the people in Jericho terrified by what they're hearing about your people, we, we don't know a lot, but we just know that there's a power with you that can divide the sea. There's a power with you where you can overcome enemies that you shouldn't be able to overcome. And you're heading our way. And then at the, at the very end of the account, the, the spies come back and they're, they're recapping with, uh, with Joshua. And they say, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now, before we go on, that's a big deal. They're not a trained military force with just great weaponry and great equipment and great resources. And the people are terrified. In fact, it, we could even put it this way. At points, it's almost as if the people in the promised land have more confidence in Israel, in Israel's victory, than Israel does. It made me think of it. This is an old episode of Seinfeld. Well, they're all old now. It's like 20-something years ago. But you remember at the beginning of those old episodes where it would start off where he was doing his, doing his act at the beginning of the episode? On one of those, he talks about just how laughable it was to him to get the publisher's clearinghouse letter when it says, you may have already won. And he says, I wish they would just print what that actually means. You have definitely lost. <laughs> and, and it's funny because the, the, the perspective of Israel through this whole thing seems to be, hmm, Maybe we've already won at their best. And the perspective of a lot of the Canaanites is, we have definitely lost. And that's, that is for sure Rahab's perspective. But that was shared by everybody. Even if that was sort of a supernatural dread, that was just, it was common. God put that on those people. But she has something different. And without going into a ton of detail, 
people that really know their Hebrew and, and, and our Old Testament scholars have said, when you look at the structure of what we call Joshua chapter 2, it works to a focal point. The way, the way the information is laid out, there's sort of a central point that the writer wanted to, to pop. And it's verse 11. Rahab says, There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, when I read that, that may not have landed. Because I think for any of us, when we're reading an Old Testament passage and it has these names like, you know, Sihon and Og, and we're not used to it, you can hear a sentence like that and think, here's a Bible character in a Bible story saying a biblical kind of thing. God is God in heaven and on earth. And not realize she is a Canaanite. She did not grow up with these things. Even monotheism is radical. But it's even more than that. When she says, the Lord your God, you see how the Lord is in all caps in verse 11? That's how most of our English translations translate the personal name of God, Yahweh. And when Rahab, a Canaanite woman, says, Yahweh, your God, He's God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. When she says that, she's also saying, Baal is not. Asherah is not. Ishtar is not. Where did she get that? And again, Jake already mentioned this. The most famous passage about faith, arguably, in the Bible is in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 11. In fact, it's one of the only, it's one of the only places where you find a biblical word defined. And I, we, we wish we had more of those. But Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Faith, what is it? It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. And then it lists all these people that are like the kind of greatest hits of the Bible stories. And it's the famous people, you know. It's Abraham and it's Noah and all those. But guess who shows up in the latter part of that chapter as a person of faith? Rahab the prostitute, Hebrews 11, verse 31. It's not just called confidence or a hunch. It is faith. Where did it come from? If she, she doesn't even have the, the, the fairly small portion of Scripture that's been written so far. How did she know? And you know, oh, that we had more time to go through the Bible and just look at these, these people that have faith, that shouldn't have faith. Now, I, I want to just list like 11 of them, but I'm going to pop if I don't tell you one. And it's, uh, uh, it's in the Gospels. And it's, I had a seminary professor say, this episode is the only time that Jesus let someone win in a verbal exchange. And it's a Canaanite woman. And she's coming asking that her daughter will be healed. And Jesus is talking to her. And there are all these people around him. The people who are around him would have viewed her as a dog. He would not view her that way. But when he interacts with her, he uses their vocabulary. He says, well, you know, it, it, it would be wrong 
for me to take bread from the children's table and give it to the dogs. You know, I'm supposed to heal Israelites. Why should I heal your daughter? And he just called her a dog, and she says, Yes, Lord. She concedes that she's a dog. Not defensive. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs stay under the table to eat the crumbs from the children's table. Now, at this point in the conversation, it's like Jesus has been playing poker, if I may say that. It's like Jesus has his cards close to the chest, and when she says that response, even the dogs stay under the table to eat the crumbs from the children's table. It's like he goes, fold, you win. She's healed. I mean, fire all your guns at once and explode into space. That is so good. If I may quote Steppenwolf, too. How does she know that? How did the Roman centurion in the Gospels, whose faith amazed Jesus, where he said, I haven't found faith like that in Israel, how did he know what he knew? How does Rahab the prostitute know what she knows? And the only biblical answer that makes sense is that God gave it. And that might stretch you when you hear that because that might leave you asking, why would he give faith to a prostitute? And it's good if you're asking that because that's Scripture nudging on you to ask yourself a question. How good do you need to be for God to give you faith? Because if there's a moral threshold that any of us have to hit, there are two people in the sanctuary that are in a lot of trouble, and that's me and you. And there she is. Rahab's faith was unnatural. Rahab's faith was active. It acted. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's pretty straightforward. We just said she, she made like a confession of faith, verse 11. Um, the Yahweh your God is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Orthodox. Unheard of in Jericho. But when she says that, here's the thing, that's not an abstraction. In other words, because verse 11 is true, it means she must do certain things. If verse 11 is true, I must hide these spies, even though that's completely counterintuitive. The community would expect her, if someone is spying out our city to invade us, you hand them over. She does the counterintuitive thing because verse 11 is true. She doesn't tell the king of Jericho the truth because verse 11 is true. I know that's a whole other discussion. She lets the men down in the night when she could have been spotted by a guard so that they can escape safely because verse 11 is true. That's how faith is. What's intuitive to human beings is to live by what you see. It's intuitive and it's natural to live by sight. Nobody has to teach us how to do that. What's counterintuitive is to live by what you cannot see. She can't see Yahweh. She can't see His promises. But God puts in her faith in what she can't see. And she acts on what she can't see. That's what faith is like. And it it is active. The New Testament book of James... Chapter 2, there's a big section about if you have faith 
real faith, saving faith, it has to act. And James makes a big deal out of this. It's not that you're saved by your actions. You can't be. You're not saved by bearing fruit. But fruit comes from what you really believe. If you've got all these orthodox things you can say about God and you live as if He doesn't exist, you don't have saving faith because your actions are showing what you really believe. They're giving you away. Fruit shows the presence of actual, genuine, saving faith. And guess who James cites as an example? James 2, verse 25, Rahab the prostitute. And with with one exception, every time her name is given in the Bible, it's not just Rahab, it's Rahab the prostitute. And you almost wonder if she could read it, if she would be saying, Okay, they got it. But it's as if Scripture is nudging us to remember who she was, remember who she was. Her faith acted. If verse 11 is true, it means things in my life. But the last thing is this. In a lot of ways, this was... This is my favorite part to to talk about, is that um, Rahab's faith changed her story. Jericho was obliterated. And Lord willing, we're going to look at that that passage two Sundays from now. But look in your bulletin. uh, In in italics after Joshua 2, I, I put one verse. This is at the end of that account of the overthrow of Jericho, because I wanted you to hear this connected to chapter 2. The writer says this, But Rahab the prostitute, there it is again, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, again... Try to suspend that thing inside of us that just wants to hear like Bible names, Bible characters, Bible story. The writer just said, and Rahab the prostitute lives in Israel to this day. I mean, that is about one click away in Old Testament narrative from saying, and the prostitute lived happily ever after. And the Gentile woman lived in Israel for the rest of her days. And then that's the last time she's mentioned in the Old Testament. And here's what just got me. Is you get to the New Testament and you open the front door and she's standing there waiting on you. Because the gateway of the New Testament is a genealogy of the Messiah. And you find out that later in life, uh, Rahab had a son named Boaz. Boaz had a son named Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a son named David. She is not tangentially related to the Messiah. She is in the direct lineage of the Messiah. She could not have known that. We're getting to see that. And, And it's this. Hey, not only will you finish out your days, Rahab, in the community of God's people where you ought not be, but you will be directly related to the Messiah. So her faith is supernatural. It's granted to her. It's active. 
it changes her story so that she enters the people of God where she shouldn't have been and she's related to the Messiah. Wouldn't it be cool if faith still worked that way? And yet, what's the punchline? It does for every believer in this sanctuary. And I, I, just as we wrap up, I want to unpack that a little bit using those three points. And, and I want to come full circle back to how we started about how harmful it is to forget what you were, you know, what you came from, or what you presently are. Faith is, rather than say unnatural, let's say faith is supernatural. It has to be granted to you. I find in fits and starts in my own life that there are times where I remember that and then I'll go through seasons where I feel angry at non-Christians for being non-Christians. Do you ever feel that? That sometimes I'm going through life and I understand that we are mutually fallen. We are mutually broken. And it feels like a big us. But I will lapse into feeling like us versus them. And what's underneath that, the sort of dark underbelly, is that, you know, I had the good sensibilities to believe. Why can't you have the good sensibilities to believe? That is to forget who we are. According to Scripture, faith isn't natural for anyone. Saving, even if you come from a line of 30 Christian ancestors in a row, faith has to be granted by God. To to put it in Paul's words, and when I say you, I want you to hear that I'm, I'm directing this at me too. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast? as though you did not. It's a call to humility. Why me? But but think about this too. If faith is unnatural, but God can give it, think about how hopeful that is if you're here saying, you know, I'm torn about this, but there's a part of me that wants to believe, but I've tried and I can't make myself. And the beautiful thing this passage is illustrating is Look how hopeful we can be if God can give faith to Rahab the prostitute. And it wants us to keep hearing Rahab the prostitute. He can give faith to anyone. Have you ever, rather than trying to conjure it up within yourself, have you ever gone to him and said, said, would you give me the faith you require? If you require saving faith, if I can't save myself by my works, if you require faith but I can't produce it, I can't manufacture it, would you grant it to me? That's who God is. It's unnatural. Faith is active. L- let me ask you this. If your theology is orthodox, if your theology is biblical, what counterintuitive things does that mean for you and me? You know, if, if, if you're a person... And this is such a mutual struggle in this room. If you're a person who struggles with a life of prayer and you feel like, you know, the answer is that I just need to have better discipline. It's great to have discipline. It's great to have habits. We just preached a series on that. But we also need to come to grips with this. It may be that my real, like really deep down, my theology is... 
Heaven is going to do what heaven's going to do. It does its thing. Earth is largely going to do what earth is going to do, except in my little sphere that I work in. And what changes that is my work. So I've got to just work all the time. I've got to think about work all the time. That that's how life really... That's, that's pretty much deism. We can say that we have an orthodox theology. We can functionally be deists. And that's, deism is intuitive. It says, somebody designed all this, but I got a lot, I've got a lot to do. But what's counterintuitive is to say, if Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth beneath, the way for me to have a fruitful life is to go into my closet and close the door and talk to Him where no one can see it and no one can hear what I'm saying, and it changes me, and it changes Greenville, and it changes people I care about, it changes people who I want to have saving faith and they don't, they don't have it. That is a counterintuitive thing to do if verse 11 is true. But our faith, friends, is to act. Not just be an abstraction that we talk about. And the more counterintuitive, probably, the more real it is. The last thing is this about... You know, Rahab's faith changed her story. And it's not because she had... Again the faith that was given to her was used by God to change her story. All right, deep breath. There is a topic that I broach rarely. I probably should more often. It is so fraught with misunderstanding and landmines that I do it with fear and trembling. And if you're visiting, I really feel the need to qualify on this that you need to know, and, if, and you can check with others, I don't talk politics from up front. But the topic is abortion. It is so painful. It is such a lightning rod topic. Even me saying the word, just sort of, the room feels different. Part of the church's mishandling of this topic, at least in the United States, has been that we have been quick to denounce the taking of the life of the unborn without offering robust hope and good news to the person who decided to do that or the person who pressured someone into doing that or even to the doctor that provided it. And this morning is an opportunity for me, for me to say this. We as a church, in our denomination, and, and just historic Christianity does denounce the taking of the life of the unborn. No apologies there. But we would do you a disservice if we just threw that out there, and that is something that had touched your life, and you left, you left here deflated, and maybe something that was already in you got run through an amplifier. And that was that either because you have done that or you pressured someone to do that or you participated in that, that you feel like I am forever behind the eight ball. You know, I am forever spiritually tainted. I am forever damaged goods. Because that is not the gospel. The gospel is that God can change your story. Because that is a sin. 
And dare I say it, if that is something that's touched your life directly, that it, it is the tip of the iceberg. Any sin that any of us could describe about any of our lives, that sin is the tip of the iceberg. We need a great Savior. But here's the amazing thing. The way you have the benefit of a great Savior is through faith. How do you get that faith? God gives it to you. And when He gives it to you, what things happen? You are unnaturally brought into the people of God. And it's really unnatural if you're not ethnically descended from Abraham. Like, for instance, if your last name is German. Like, hey, big. You're brought into the family of God. You are forever related to the Messiah. Jesus is our elder brother. Not pretend, but real. And the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is our Father. Not pretend, but for real. And that even what was said of Rahab at the end of chapter 6, she was saved by Joshua. You know what Jesus' Hebrew name was? Yeshua, Savior. That anyone given that faith can say, Yeshua saved me. Yeshua rescued me. Yeshua rescued me from the power of Yahweh when I deserve to be overthrown. It's such good news. And if any of you would ever like to talk about that subject that I just broached, I'm happy to do that, or there's some great people in our church to talk to, but this is a level playing field. And here's the hope, is that what you come away with this morning is not that, wow, Rahab did great things for God. That's not the gospel. You know what the gospel is? Is it that we can do great things for God? No. The gospel is that God has done great things for sinners. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, here we are as a mixed bag. Our pasts, our present... Uh, ways that we believe and it's mixed with unbelief. Or maybe there's no belief to mix with. Maybe it's, there's just no belief, at least no pretended belief in you, no pretended belief in Jesus. And Lord God, we pray that whatever obstacle, whatever objection would be removed, taken away, overrun, and that to the man or the woman or the child sitting here who still needs saving faith that you would grant it from above. And Father, for all of us, we'd say we believe. Uh, help us in our unbelief. The, thing, the actions our faith requires, bring that fruit into our lives. Enable us to do what is counterintuitive. Thank you for changing sinner stories. In Jesus' name, amen.